Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. My name is Josh Lyons. I've been listening to Hardcore and Punk since 1995. I have book shows, put out a fanzine, run a record label, and now I'm doing a podcast. This is the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. Welcome to episode 18 of Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. On today's episode, we have my buddy Jim Byrne uh, calling in from Arizona for the, for the interview. Um, as always, you can find us on the web at EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com. There you will find links to all social media pages as well as all the streaming information. So without any further ado, uh, let's bring Jim on. How's everything going for you today, Jim? Pretty good, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, definitely, man. So uh, obviously we're going to talk about you know the, the noteworthy bands you played in in Rochester, uh, as well as a lot of uh, fun and uh, interesting times we've both had in the hardcore scene and that you and I have kind of talked about for the better part of 20 years now. Uh, I don't know if people find this as interesting as you and I do, but I guess we'll uh, we'll find out in a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that. I was like, man, these going to be a lot of inside stories that not everybody's going to be a part of. They better be that entertaining to carry the, the, the episode, but yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. Yeah, time will tell. But I guess before we, we dive into like the the real juicy stuff, let's kind of take a, a step back and uh, talk about your upbringing and kind of what let you into brought you into hardcore and punk and stuff like that. Yeah, I um had been thinking about this and it was uh you know listening to the episodes that um uh, that you put out, not all of them, but um you know definitely the first one with uh, Rob Antonucci and there's kind of a connection there. Um, if I think about kind of like the first time I had access to like true underground music um, and it was because um, my mom worked with um, Sean Bailey or excuse me, Sean Bailey's dad um, for a number of years and Sean Bailey from Newark played in the Chugs, played in Billy on Fire with Rob and so um, you know, my mom and, and, and Sean's dad would talk music a lot and, and it just kind of would come through. And so uh, I would get a couple tapes from, from Sean and, you know, like you don't have, growing up where I did out in kind of like suburban, rural, like, you know, mostly white suburbia, um, it was, you don't have access to a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, you'd, you'd see MTV and like uh, metal and stuff that they play on there and like some friends that had older brothers and stuff like that but like there's no real context for it you know my dad uh, and mom like classic rock and stuff like that so nothing really uh, harder than, than anything like that um, and so it was in like junior high probably 7th 8th grade that some of those tapes came through from Sean I just didn't know what to make of it you know it, it, um, it just sounded way different than anything else I'd ever heard and you know there's no like base to connect it to really and um i remember in junior high there was this split in our school like the skaters versus the preps was like this breakdown and uh you know the skaters listened to mostly kind of like it was like green day was their their introduction and they didn't and and like offspring and so the stuff that had made it to the radio but then some of those guys ended up listening to like finding like truer underground music um and i reconnected with somebody i played um youth uh youth football with um uh, when we were sophomores in high school and he was a part of that skaters group and um i tried to walk in both of those worlds and i had friends you know like i i, I would 
try and you know be cool uh, with the skaters crowd because number one I didn't really want to get beat up um, but two um, I you know I didn't really see much wrong with what you know they were doing I had no ill will against them for being who they are and what they're doing um, I just did it that stuff just didn't connect with me then and um, so Pete uh, was this skater friend, friend uh, that I had before and like we were we ended up in class together um, and just talking about bands talking about music and it was him so I he would just start pumping these tapes to me and that's where I first heard so this would have been what um, 97 so that's he was giving you know I got like Slugfest and Despair tapes Snapcase uh, Brothers Keeper Grill Biscuit I mean just like a bunch of the stuff and again I had no real base for it but um, you know the stuff that connected with me most uh, and like right away were Slugfest and Despair something about that sound something about vocals uh, vocals um, just really that was the stuff that, that hooked me right away and um, but but I just kind of so it was, uh, that was like most of the world that I knew and you know I, those guys were going to shows with some of their older brothers or older friends that they had uh, met I remember them specifically talking about the um, uh, last despair show and like how packed Buffalo was and, and what that show was like and um, and then like every now and again I could like see like a, a VHS tape of a show or a clip or something like that and it just you know looked raw and looked nuts and um, I still didn't have like enough of an in with them to like take me to a show and I just I probably didn't ask either um, so it probably it wasn't until I was a junior that I went to um, the, was it a VFW or a teen place? What was that place in Fairport where they had a lot of shows? Well, there was the Fairport Teen Center and there was a Fairport VFW hall, but you're probably thinking of the Fairport Teen Center. That's it. That's it. Um, and I remember I've seen one of your zines there, and I, I, I don't know if I picked it up or not. Um, and uh, that was that was like a, a taste of that. I still didn't really like dig the music that those bands were playing. Um, I remember like wishing I had like more access to that and then um my senior year it was finally when I went to like the first real show um I think it was yeah it was towards the end uh so like spring of 2000 somewhere in there it might have been um I went to there was a the Bane show at the VFW place in uh in Henrietta um, Bane played, band from Vermont played, was it in reach? Somebody had, I think, uh, Greg had posted the flyer from that show. Um, that was one of my first ones. I, then, uh, later that spring, I saw, uh, Boys Had Fire and Turmoil, um, and Snapcase played, uh, Water Street. And that was, I, I fell in love with Boys Had Fire too. That, that really connected, especially the politics that connected with me a lot. That's my daughter. Um, so those were kind of my, my intros to that. And, um, I had been playing in, uh, so me and that kid Pete, we started like basically like a Rage Against the Machine cover band. Uh, we would just play songs. Uh, we never really played out. Um, and then they morphed into like to a jam band and I said, cool, uh, that's your thing. I'll see you later. Um, and then I started playing in kind of like a, a pop punk band, um, and then um, that lasted for about a year and a half or so. Um, 
and uh, we got to play some some interesting places. Um, and then reconnected with uh, Rob Magnani, who grew up in my neighborhood. Um, and he was like, "Hey, man, do you want to play like in an old school hardcore band?" He had met Aiden Monahan, who was tattooing um, someplace uh, in Rochester. And, uh, and so through Rob that we put all that stuff together, um, uh, with, uh, Sean and this, this guy, Brian playing drums, uh, and put together something sacred. And that was in like, that was 2001, I think. Yeah, that would be late 2001, yeah. but I kind of want to backtrack just a little bit because I don't know how many people listening to this podcast, uh, refer to you as Labatt's, but I obviously do. And I know one of those earlier uh, possibly punk or ska punk bands you were in was with an old sort of rival of mine from high school that I'm cool with now, obviously. But I think he's the one that gave you the nickname Labatt's. I don't know if you remember that story or not. You told it to me years ago. Um, oh, that's right. Um, I forgot that you had a connection. Uh, their name was Alex, wasn't it? Yeah, Alex Drum. That's it. Oh, man. Um, what a character. Uh, yeah, it was. It was a second band that Robin uh, uh, Magnetti and I had played in. It was kind of a, a screamo band um, sort of thing. And uh, yeah, they, they were like trying to put together the website for the band. And it was funny. I was trying to even remember that band's name. Uh, if Rob's listening, he's like, you dumbass. You know, it's whatever our name was. Um, and uh, he did, they were, Alex was putting together the, um, the website or, or something that he needed to know my last name and he didn't and I don't think uh and that he didn't have access to Rob at the time and uh or the drummer because I, I went to high school with the drummer too and so he just was like um Labatt's and so that name stuck as a nickname um in that band and and then beyond that once and then people legit thought that was my last name for a long time um so and I mean, it's not like I was like some frat head who like only drank Labatt's, uh, like whatever drinking or something like that. But yeah, I was, man, I forgot about that kid, Alex Brown. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, he's he's someone that kind of had like a like an immature like I was from the city, he was from the suburbs, so our bands kind of beefed like '95, '96, and we haven't even seen each other face to face in years. But we talked on like one of the social networking sites, you know, years ago, mm. and we're like. If only we knew each other as adults, we would have been a lot cooler because we have similar personalities or whatever. And, you know, so I have no ill will towards him now, obviously. Um, but it's just funny because, like, even, like, D'Lo, um, who I'm probably five people listening to this know who D'Lo is, and, and you and I are two of those five people. Um, but he definitely would still refer to you as Labatt's after all these years, you know, and, and it's just <laughs> one of those funny things. Um, but, yeah, with Something Sacred, what was funny about that was... I had seen Aiden around a little bit and probably met Rob once or twice. And I think you and I met each other for the first time at that, uh, I booked a Come and Correct show, which was your guys' first show. And I've referenced this show on this podcast a few times already, obviously, because uh, a, a, a funny piece of uh, history of my life happened that day uh, where I got a tooth knocked out during your guys' set. Um, and I think you're the one who actually ended up picking that, picking that tooth up and... Uh, I don't know if you put the tooth in milk or what you did with it, but you, you like preserved the tooth for me because I had to leave for like an hour. Um, I think I immediately left like right after uh, Jim knocked the tooth out. Not you, Jim, but Jim Callahan. Because um, my buddy who I grew up with, who you, actually, you actually met him too, Alex. 
uh, really interesting character that we saw after uh, a few parties. Um, his dad, his dad's a dentist. Um, so yeah, we went over there just to have him look at it. And, and then when I came back, I was like, did anybody happen to find my tooth on the floor? And you were like, I don't know if you've been looking for it for a while or if you already had it in your hand, but you're like, oh yeah, man, it's, I got it right here. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, that was, um, that it came up, uh, during the, the killing time cover, which uh, I'll talk about later because it has a, another funny or a memorable connection, not as interesting of a story but um yeah that was a sick i remember like i got brand new springs uh strings because i kept um busting my strings in practice because there was like something wrong with my bass and i was playing too hard and i had these brand new strings and i was so nervous um to play because it was like you know it was like you got us onto a legit bill it was our it was our first show and uh super psyched i was super psyched to be in that that kind of band and uh and have the kind of stuff that we had for you know at that time and i remember just shredding my knuckles because uh i was playing so hard i dropped my pick and i was just I was a bloody mess and then you um yeah i can't remember if it was between bands or it was when everybody cleared out and finally like all the lights came on that i was just kind of looking around because um, you know, I had, I wanted to find your tooth. <laughs> Part of it was like, you're like, I just like, you know, I would see the, the shit talk on the message board. Um, and, and I was like, this dude seems like a good dude. I don't understand. Like people don't know him or something like that. Anyways. Um, yeah, I can't, I just look, I'm pretty good at finding things for, for some reason, but, um, yeah, I just looked down and kind of like, this looks like part of a tooth. And, uh, and sure enough, it was, well, I guess it was yours. But um, yeah, that was pretty wild. That was a, that was a great opening show. Um, it was wild. Tim Callahan went nuts. Yeah, and it's funny because obviously you and I have talked about Killing Time since then, and they're, and they're a band that I really like now. But at the time, I wasn't as familiar with Killing Time. I knew that song because Reach the Sky would always cover it. Uh, which we'll talk about in a second because they, they played one of your guys' next shows. Um, mm-hmm. But I just remember you, you guys open up the do, 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 and it's like, oh, shit, man, here we go, you know? So I go up front, <laughs> and Jim Callahan just happens to put his elbow out at just the right time, and it was one of those, like, reactions where I just, like, spit the tooth out immediately, too, and I was just so disgusted, like, not even in pain, you know, but just so, like, I wasn't working at the time, so I didn't have insurance or anything, you know, and I was like, man, how the fuck am I going to pay for this, you know? Um, but yeah, it's just funny that things would happen like that. But now that band, how long, how long did you guys do something sacred for? Like, like two years maybe, or not even, it seems like it was at least two years. It, it was probably a, a full two years. Um, it ended when the guitar, second guitar player we picked up and then became the only guitar player, Dan Butts. And he moved to new Orleans, um, either late 2002, early 2003, somewhere in there. And, and that was the end of it. Um, and that was, that was, it kind of sucked. Cause like we were just kind of getting a new sound and he was just that much more of a like hard music playing, um, guitar player than Rob was. So he just kind of knew how to get a, a much meaner sound. We tuned down the D and you know, he just had riffs and stuff he had been working on. So we we're, I was I was especially bummed. I was I was a little a little heartbroken at the time. Like, this is 
we had put out we had put out a th- uh, new three song demo, and I think that's when you you had made the comment about like, what, what's up? You guys playing like Biohazard now or something? And uh, so they're a good company to keep, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it was somewhere around there. I was trying to think about when when he ended up leaving. Um, but I think some probably our last show was like a November. November 2002, I think that was our last show that we had. So, yeah, it was about about a two-year run, somewhere in there. And there was definitely some good bills. Um, you guys played with, like I, like I said, the first show I played was with Coming Correct, and then we had uh, uh, Reach the Sky and, uh, uh, you know, Grade played, too. And then um, I want to say there was a couple times that I had you guys with Desperate Measures. And then there was another funny story of a show you guys either played or didn't end up playing uh, I wasn't there because it was a few hours away from town, but I know it involves uh, Rick to life. Uh, what are your memories of that? Oh man, uh, that, that was that was quite a road trip. It was way up north. Um, I remember, uh, like St. Lawrence area, um, in a, in a place like I think they called it the Crack House. It was like somebody's. Um, um, like a, we ended up playing in our living room because nobody else showed up. Um, but it was like, yeah, after Aiden had gotten in touch or, or like tried to stay in touch with, with Rick to life after the coming correct and you know, um, they had called us or emailed. I don't know what the communication was, but it was like trying to set up like a weekend. Um, I think it was like in April that year that, that first show we played with them was I think January and then reach the sky was February but it was like it was like April or May because it wasn't too hot, but it was nice out. And um, yeah, Rick till I set it up <laughs> that we would we would go play up there. Um, maybe it wasn't just a weekend. Maybe it was just the one time uh, or the one show. But you know, in like true Rick till life fashion, kind of like hyping it up, and then you know we get we get rolling on our way and and get up there and like I don't know if the main organizer, the whoever was putting on the show, wasn't even there. But it was like some like Texas Chainsaw Massacre like feel because it was like next to a junkyard. Nobody knows what's going on. The house is like in like disarray and this you know it's it's a like punk house. And um, yeah, like I said, the dude like comes out. He's all scraggly and and like this cat's like purring all over us. He's like, hey, that's our cat, Doctor Mengele. And we just kind of look at each other like, where are we right now? You know, like this is. This is a this is much different than like a, a tough like hood show that we could play and we that would feel familiar. This is yeah it, it had like horror horror movie written all over it and we're just the whole time we're just like MF and Rick from walking us into this scenario where like we're the only ones there nobody knows to be a show on and um, so we we're like well do we just go home like we turn around. And uh, I don't know. At some point, we all just kind of reached this decision where we're like, "Fuck it, we're gonna play." And uh, you know, we came all this way. So we plugged in in this person's uh, living room. Some of his friends finally came over. Uh, ended up having like a lot of fun just because it was just like, "Ah, oh, fuck it," you know, we'll just we'll just do this. And uh, you know, their friends got drunk and just like tore up their living room and stuff. But yeah, it was like, all right, uh, lesson learned. Let's. Uh, Let's have some backup when uh, when Rick the Life invites us to something. Yeah, and it's interesting because 
the Brick to Life from like 94 to that era seems pretty normal compared to what he ended up turning out to be. Um, you know, now was there even a PA at that show? I guess I've never asked you that before. Were you guys just like singing into an amp at that point? Or? Good question. I don't know. Um, I'm pretty sure we had some kind of vocals to go along with it. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to ask Aiden um, how, how he and Sean did it. But um, yeah, there had to have been something. But it, yeah, it wouldn't have been good. So yeah, bar time came a little bit later, but I mean, during all this time, you and I were, were traveling to a lot of a lot of what I would call now at this point classic and legendary shows. I mean, you and I probably saw No Warning at least two or three times, if not more. We, I mean, we saw a lot of the first Terror shows. Um, you know, I I I mean, there that that era. It's just crazy because I think I think you and I both. When we were there, we were jacked up and enjoying like being at all these great shows. But I don't think we would have realized like 20 years later, looking back on it, it would be like this, this thing that all these kids like kind of get excited for these bands to reunite for now, you know? Yeah, I, uh, yes, I uh, completely agree. If we list out some of the bills that we saw, you know, of, it's like for us, like when you look at back on like some of those like Madball, Earth Crisis, Marauder shows, and you're like, holy, sh like I would have killed them. Like been in a time machine to get back to that uh, uh, lineup, but yeah, we got to see some of those. Whether it was um, the Posse Numbers Fest or even just like the reg like regular tours between like uh, Terror, Death Threat, No Warning, The Promise, A Death for Every Sin. Um, yeah, those. And then and then they, they you know then they were bringing out like the good the smaller bands um touring with them or like good local bands too so there was just not a hole on any of those lineups for a bunch of those shows and it's funny you mentioned that mad mad ball earth crisis marauder because i was just uh interviewing my buddy pat from baltimore who will be the episode before you um and him and i were talking about that mad ball show in dc that you and sean and aiden and i rolled down to and that was like probably i think you guys went they played syracuse like the week before with no warning and i don't remember who else because I, I had to work but that was like probably like a month after they had gotten back together because they people probably don't realize that Madball broke up or like went inactive whatever whatever you want to call it at this point you know but they were inactive for a little while and then in late 2003 they got back together and started playing or maybe even maybe even early 2003 but either way that was the first time they had played around here in a long time um, and that and that DC show was just fucking crazy you know there was probably like a thousand people at the nation just like going nuts and you know a few fights and you know it was it was definitely a classic a classic experience with me sleeping in your uh in your trunk the whole way home pretty much or whatever that whatever that car you had was yeah yeah it's it like stowed away back there yeah yeah man you know there's there's few of those shows and and i i hope people have been to the kind of shows that we've been to where you know what i'm talking about but like that dc show what like you could just you could feel it in the air there was like an intensity that like something violent is going to go down it, it was just it was so palpable you know and it really like it puts your uh you know like heightens your senses puts your like awareness on people are going to be coming from every like if you're close enough to it you know people people and fists and elbows and feet are coming from every angle the the stage dives were were awesome uh yeah that that one was just you could you could cut the tension with a knife before those guys came out it was it was, that was a rough crowd. Yeah, and I think we've both probably seen Madball at least ten times by now. But 
nothing really compares to that first those first couple times. Like, and then when they played in Buffalo, I want to say they played in Buffalo like two or three times within a year or two of that. One time was with, was with Agnostic Front. Another time, I think, might have been with Death Threat. Uh, at least one of those two shows, it was like you and I in one car. And I don't know if, if, if uh, Jeff Knight was driving by himself or with some other people, but we drove by on the on the highway, and all of a sudden, like, his car was on fire or some shit. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that at all. But but regardless, like, there, there was just... that Those those shows were just so so fun, man. Like, like I mean... I've seen Madball recently, like like not recently, recently, probably like four years ago. But they they still they still bring it live. But there's just something about seeing a band for the first time where you don't really know what to expect, and they kind of have this like, you know, just this reputation for being like hard dudes or whatever. And you you really don't like you said you don't know what's gonna happen if there's gonna be a fight, you know. And and it's just like it it was it was classic, you know. Yeah, there. I I mean, I, there's new bands that are like connected to like some of the, you know, like new bands now or, or within like the last probably 10 to 15 years that, that have formed who are like connected to like, you know, rough, rough people, um, who, you know, do some, do some interesting things to survive. And like, uh, at least for me, like Madball was like one of those kinds of bands that had like connections, especially cause they're from York, but like when they were in places, uh, and not even in New York, um, New York city, but, you know they would they would pull out those like those guys were like 10 to 15 years older than us and just like hard as fuck and, and like you know that just brought an edge and an element to the to the show that for me was like that was part of the stuff that always made like the, the lore of like uh you know the late 80s early 90s especially in new york like those kinds of shows like those kind like legendary stories of the characters and like violence there and not to say that you want to see anybody get the shit beat out of them all the time, but like, you know, it just brings a, an, an added like element to the show that, that that's part of what hardcore music's about. Yeah, you know, I was telling Scott Vogel on that episode um, that I want to get some of those some of those New York hardcore guys on the show, and I know him and you know him and people like Mike Jeffers would probably rather hear some Buffalo interviews just to hear like the trivia from their hometown, but. You know, or, or I guess from like his adopted hometown, whatever you want to call it. But you know, for you and I, it would be cool just to to be able to hear some of these crazy old New York stars. I don't know how many I'd be able to pull out of these guys, you know. But I mean, my eventual plan is to have like like two episodes per week, and have like every other episode be either Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, and then the other one be like a different region, you know. Um, yeah. Because there's definitely a lot of classic stuff from this area that I really hadn't thought of when I first started doing this. And I, and originally when I started writing the list down of people to interview. I was like, man, I'm going to run out of people within, like, two or three months, you know? And now I feel like I'm just getting started, you know? Like, I feel like I'm just kind of just hitting into the iceberg at this point, you know? So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I guess after something sacred, um, in addition to kind of trying to start a band with Tom Zenz and Nick Lemesis and I, um, you actually did start a real band, uh, Borrowed Time, that that uh, you, you had some pretty good experiences with. But uh, first, tell me about, like, the formation of that band and, and how it kind of, you know, went from something sacred to that, pretty much. Well, you know, like, Aiden and I wanted to stay stay in a band together and, and figure out what was next. Um, and, you know, we it felt like, like I said, like, the way something sacred left off um, was, like, where Aiden and I wanted to go with the next project. Um and I think, 
I can't remember how because I, you know, um, I don't know if I had seen Heat Seeker when um, Brendan was in the band early enough. I don't think he was. I think I would have remembered, um, you know, somebody who looked like him uh, kind of stand out in a at a show like uh, that. But um, Aiden knew him somehow or knew of him. Uh, uh, Dan Butson definitely knew who Brendan was um, from being from you know, being around the scene in the '90s, and then so he had somehow like got somebody had shared him or he got it somehow the the newer something sacred demo and um, it was it, unless my memory's wrong on that um, you know as like something we'd want to play and um, so the three of us got together at. at, at uh, um, the heat seeker space up there, um, at the warehouse and, um, you know, Brendan had some riffs he had kind of dug out and dusted off. Um, and we started jamming on that and, you know, it was like, we want to do, you know, like a hundred demons, Marauder, like biohazard influence, uh, you know, hard, fast and, and metallic, uh, and with, with some, with some heavy breakdowns and, um, we were trying I think Timmy were you trying Nick Lemesis on drums then yeah I'm pretty yeah. sure Nick was yeah. the original yeah. drummer yeah cause you know I had known Nick obviously uh, before that and I think Aiden did a little bit too and we were trying and, and you know he was still young and um, didn't quite you know, his, his musical tastes and stylings were and playing abilities were kind of like suited for something else um, and uh and so that didn't quite work out um, at some point. We had, and we had a second guitar player, this guy named Tim, uh, a friend of a friend of Black Jeff. And I'll lead that to a funny story here in a second before we played our first show. Um, and so we that was like spring, like spring or winter of 2004. We were jamming, and so that like we were ready to roll with at least a set. Uh, of music by t- by the time that Madball uh, show, which I think was September or October, uh, at the Penny Arcade. Um, so, so it was we were coming up on that, and we we're like, our, uh, Brendan ended up finding um, uh, Corey out of Syracuse, um, very good drummer, and uh, and we would go out there. He'd come here, um, so he had learned. We put started to get that demo together. Um, and, and get ready for that Madball show, and, and we're as we're like getting ready for it, and we're um, kind of looking at Tim, who can't wasn't really hanging with playing these songs skillfully enough, and um, it was like you know like Brendan, Aiden, and I kind of put our heads together like, hey, uh, we can't, he's he's got he can't he, he can't go on there, right? He, he can't. We can't take him out there with us. We're not going to go out there for a first show with Madball and and have that on the stage, right? And so we're kind of looking around at each other, and Brent's like, "Hey, that's your dude." You know, he just kind of backs away. Like, I want no part of like telling him, uh, letting him down so hard. And um, you know, he'd really taken a shine to Aiden um, and getting to know him. And and uh, I don't I don't know how it came down, but it was like Aiden, like, "Shit, I'll do it. All right, fine." And uh, he he came back. We were living together at the time, and he came back. And Aiden was like, "Dude, that was like the hardest thing I've ever had to do." He's like, "That was harder than breaking up with a girl." 
<laughs> he's like, it was just like, you know, uh, Costanza, it's not me, it's you, or it's not you, it's me kind of thing. I, he's like, I threw out everything I had to try and get rid of, you know, let him down gently. Um, but, uh, yeah, that first show was, was nuts. I, I don't know. I, I remember, you know, you being up front, Sean was up there, um, and, and, you know, the Dawn of War guys. And um, it felt great because it was like, Y'all didn't even really heard any of the stuff that we had. I think we kicked it off with the Chromax. Um, we got a no intro and then busted into our, our first song. And it just it felt awesome to like have people uh, go nuts uh, for your stuff like that you're really proud of. Um, and on a show like that, it was uh, it was really cool. You know, I, I don't think I had heard you guys yet, but just knowing you and like, a, like we were talking about before, having gone to so many shows with you, I kind of knew what to expect. Um, but one thing I'm a, I'm a little curious about, I guess, and you were kind of you were kind of referencing a little bit in the beginning. Um, now, when you and I tried to do a couple bands, um, the one with Tom Zenz and then the one with um, uh, Hungover Hungover Straight Edge Ray, um, you you wrote a lot of the music for that stuff. Now, was that the case in Borrowed Time too, or was it more more Brendan and you would just kind of write the bass lines, or was it a mixture? Um, for the for the first demo and then what became that um, release on Reaper, um, Brendan probably wrote definitely the fair majority. Uh, I would come up with like a line or two for a, like a little part here or there. Because um, I hadn't quite, you know, obviously I like listened to those bands, loved those bands, but I hadn't written for that kind of style. So I didn't, I wasn't really prepared. Um, I did dig back to like some of the riffs. Um, that I was like working on for uh, something sacred um, before it, it split, um, but then then I kind of got my uh, my writing chops underneath my feet, and we didn't. It kind of came out as like the next EP that we and the split that we did with uh, that French Canadian band. Um, come on, name escapes me now. Um, I sympathize with Volvo about the memory issues. Um, but it, it, um, so I wrote probably half or so of those of those songs. Um, and then the same thing for like the next uh, recording that we did about, I did probably about, you know, 50% or something like that. Um, maybe even a little bit more for the sec, for the, for the, well, the third recording. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, great to write with Brendan um and then you know when we picked up uh he so we were borrowing um his drummer from Heatseeker uh dude by the nickname Murdoch um and so you know he could do some things and it, but like that style really wasn't his bag it, he didn't come from that style um and uh and when we picked up Colin um 2006 I think somewhere in there um, and then he just kept getting better. And, and by that last recording that I was a part of, we, we were, we were tight. Um, we were, we were a nice little machine going there. I was really, I was really happy with those songs, but then I, I moved away to go to grad school. So that I just kind of had to like leave my part of the band. And then I never really got to play those songs out live. Uh, and nothing, nothing much came of that recording, which sucks. Cause I, I was really proud of those songs. I, th I thought we had something, but you know, life changes course so yeah you know and, and eric sander's a good dude and an old friend of mine but it was still 
pretty weird to see somebody else playing bass to those songs live, you know. <laughs> um, but talking about Colin a little bit, Brendan had referenced uh, the European tour. Um, I'm, I'm interested to hear your stories of that tour too. But but now, did you tell me uh, on a side note that you had to drive him like several hours away to try to get his passport, which he never ended up getting, or, or am I mixing that up uh, somewhere along the line? No, that's that's pretty that's that's the that's the start of it. Um, yeah, so we had to um, get all our you know the official documents and stuff together to go go to Europe for that uh, two weeks, ten ten shows or so, and. Um, uh, I think everybody else had their stuff together and we were going to bring our friend from um, Quebec, Pierre-Luc, who was playing uh, second guitar for us um, when we would go out on shows, a uh, good guitar player. And um, so I, he had his stuff all set. And then it, I was teaching at the time, so I had the summer off and, and we were going to leave like late July or something. Yeah, late July or August. Um, anyway, I was, um, you know, taking Colin around to these different like passport locations, trying to get all his, uh, stuff lined up so he could get even, even the things like properly submitted. So I remember we would go to like the one office in in Rochester (laughs) and, um, we kind of, he got a a list of stuff and, you know, it's, it's like going to the DMV, you know, you have to have all this perfect stuff and the picture gotta be right. And, it's just a headache and then it was like okay crunch time you can't it can't be submitted in the mail because it won't get back fast enough um by the time our flight leaves so it was like okay you know they the mess the word came from them that like we could if we took it in person to like the main processing center like on the eastern seaboard or something which i think was in in uh bridgeport connecticut and um so you know, Colin and I got in my car and we, we drove out there and, um, you know, I, he was, I mean, I don't know how long he waited. I brought a book and like cruised around town, um, looking for the hunter demons guys. But, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I came back and it was, he was the, you know, the look on his face said it all. And he was just so dejected on that ride. We tried everything. You know, I went in there and tried to, tried to figure it out and we were just so, so dejected and, and really bummed that he couldn't go on this and you know he still still talks about it today it's like what a golden opportunity missed so he couldn't go and we're like oh yeah what are we gonna do and so we were in communication with the german band that we were going was taking us out cheap thrills and um you know they're like all right well you know you can borrow our drummer and then uh, their bass player could play drums really well too so they ended up splitting the set so uh can't remember um exactly which path they would take but you know we when we first landed it was like all right get get our stuff and we had to go to their practice space which is you know one of the friggin' underground bunkers that the uh nazis had put together you know throughout the city and stuff it was just wild being there and uh um yeah they they split time with us and or yeah, yeah split their time with uh with playing with us and um yeah, it was, it was, some of those shows were, were pretty cool, but it was also really interesting um, to leave and go to different countries in Europe with the German band. And like, you know, you hear, you see comedians or hear shows from like European stuff about 
about like the tensions between you know the Brits and the French and like the French and the Germans and that's that shit is still true it's still real and even with like younger generations who've got you know um, who weren't obviously around uh, when those histories were played out but like that tension and that, <laughs> that like beef is still there um, so we had we played a handful of shows in in Germany and then we went to Belgium uh, and played Antwerp and we were on with um, I don't remember they, how about a Philadelphia I think Justice uh, and, and Todd Jones was in the band briefly do I have that right I don't know if that was, uh, what's the, there's a band, there was another band in that era, I forget what they were called, that he was in, uh, Betrayed, maybe? Is it not that band? I think it was Betrayed, I think he, uh, I want to say it was Justice. It might have been. Again, I could. I remember you um, telling me, I remember you telling me you guys play with Blacklisted over there, too, if I'm not mistaken, in Europe. I could be, I could be remembering that incorrectly, too. No, it was dudes from Blacklisted who were in that band. Oh, is that who that was? Um, okay. Yeah. Um, and it was it was funny because it, it was like there was no um, there was no like smooth oh hey you're an American band we're an American band playing in Europe let's 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 have a few beers together it was this like weird tension uh, where like nobody wanted to like say what's up to the others um, and uh, and whatever they were I, I didn't really dig their their style their set um, but. Uh, that show was cool. I mean, uh, we're that was actually in the red light district there in that city, so it's weird to be around that and like you know like the weed shop right down. Uh, like we played upstairs in a bar and like downstairs was like a weed shop, um, and then we end up staying at this dude's house. This like massive like you know this dude who been wielding an axe on a battlefield like a thousand years ago. Um, for the Vikings, he was just huge, and um, and we ended up staying like a nice place, but staying on these like hard floors. We didn't have a bed to sleep in or anything like that. Uh, it was awful. I was miserable. Um, and then we played in uh, we played in London um, after that. That was uh, that was a pretty cool show. Um, kind of the highlight of that was um, meeting the singer from Knuckle Dust. That uh, that. English band, and I don't know if we stayed at his house, or we we definitely stayed at a member of Knuckle Dust's house, and then like that dude was over like that night or the next morning or something like that. Good bunch of dudes. I wish we had like a, a chance to go back, but yeah, part of that trip, like half the band got sick with like some cold, and we're just like slugging it out, miserable. Um, Pierre Luke was driving us nuts with like. He's kind of partially homesick, but also just like, like chill. You're like a like a puppy over here. Like, we love you, but like chill the hell out. Um, and then you know, like when you're on tour, like things get you start to get a little goofy. And um, we would put up. Brendan would put somebody would put on like old Fury of Five, and I had never heard like the earlier stuff, which is way harder and better. Um, I had the one like at War of the World, and, and like at that point they were kind of like a, an image of themselves or something. And so I would just, we were in this, some big honking band and like somebody put that on and then like, you know, one of the five breakdowns in each song comes on. And I would just go like diving over the benches, like into somebody and like start swinging, like, and I just yell out band mosh and just like start, start going nuts inside the van just to cut it up a little bit. But yeah, that, that tour was a blast. Um, 
some of the shows didn't happen, but you know, we got to see a lot. People uh, uh, pretty much dug our stuff. They like um, we did uh, we did a, we did a like they love the Chrome Mags over there in Germany. So our Chrome Mags cover went over really well too. And that that was always really fun. I'm pretty sure Jamie toured with you guys when you went over to Europe. Uh, I've never known how to pronounce his last name. I don't know if you do or not, but um, a good a good local dude. Um, but him and I ended up kind of taking the stage and doing that Chromag song with you guys for like the next year and a half after that, which was always a good time. Because I was kind of, I don't want to say on the fringe of hardcore. Like you you know, I've always still loved hardcore, but I wasn't really going to as many shows. But during that era, whenever you guys and Donna War played, I would always really try to make it a point to go because that was kind of like for me from like 2004 to 2010, that was like what, what Rochester Hardcore was all about to me was, was YouTube, your two bands, you know what I mean? Yeah. All right, we're going to take about a 13-minute break from the interview to hear some Borrowed Time songs. There's four songs in total. The first song is called Scene King, and the last three are the last three songs that Jim recorded with the band. After that, we'll jump right back into the interview. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. The other thing I was thinking about, too, you mentioned Inferior 5. It kind of reminds me of two things. Um, you know, first, I'm not really, I've never really been a huge fan of that band, but their but they're singer, Stickman, whenever there's an interview or any stories about him, it's kind of like reading something about Isaac or one of those dudes. Like, I have to... I've, I've watched his, his interviews on, online a few times because he always has some interesting things to say, you know. Um, oh, yeah. And then uh, on a similar note, uh, another New Jersey band, E-Town Concrete, who I also never really got into. I don't know if you remember this or not, but I booked them here with Ringworm. Uh, it was either 2002 or 2003. I want to say it was 2002, but it might have been 2003. Is it the Penny Arcade? Um, I started talking about this with Brendan in the interview we did, but I don't think it made the interview because we had to we had to reshoot some stuff because the audio was all fucked up. Um, but that was one of the shows I did at the Penny Arcade. Where in retrospect, I really shouldn't have booked that show because nobody really came out to the show. You know, I, I had a feeling that I was going to lose some money, and then it got to a point where I realized I couldn't pay E Town quite as much as I had told them I was going to. And I remember turning to you and Aiden at one point of the night and being like. Do you guys mind, uh, you know, kind of waiting around here after the show just to make sure that I don't get any uh, limbs broken or punched in the face or anything like that? And I remember, <laughs> like, the dude, the singer was a really nice guy about it, and I feel bad, you know, shorting them whatever, 100 bucks or whatever it was, but he was cool about it. And I remember uh, we were walking out of the show, and you guys were just standing out, out there by my ex-girlfriend's car, and you're like, yo, so... Are we good? Is everything okay? You know? <laughs> and that was like the crazy thing about that era. It was like, I would book all these shows, and for whatever reason, when I was putting them together, I was always like, oh yeah, this is going to do really well. That's going to do really well. I'll be able to pay this band this much. And as many times as people like you were kind of referencing before would talk all this shit about me, like making all this money and doing all this stuff, like that really wasn't the case back then as you as you well know, like I was losing money more than, more than anything with most of the good shows that I booked, you know? Like, yeah. It was like, we could, it was too, you know, <laughs> I to use like this phrase, like if we were onto something, but it was like that era was like ahead of its time, you know, like we did the base that came, the young kids that came for like when Follow Time and Dawn of War were on, who were like super into us would have loved all those shows that you were putting on, you know five years earlier or so and uh yeah i mean you put on those lineups and like it's just crickets in there it made for great space for motion but like it's like on the other it sucked because nobody was there and like half of those bands would kind of feel it you know and we we i mean no offense to those bands you just wouldn't see them at their best either sometimes uh in those kinds of conditions yeah so you would not get sometimes like the full effect of seeing like some of those some of those bands um unfortunately it's like too many to list um but uh, i was gonna say you uh talking about like heavy or like kind of intimidating front men for bands uh it made me think of a funny story like to share um so we played borrow time played up in um we play we played quebec city like our first um first tour but then we we went up there a couple up to canada a couple different times but there was one where we were touring with uh where we yeah how did it play out i don't know the snow really wrecked um us getting through so i think we missed a montreal show um and then but then we played near ottawa um 
in Gatineau, which is technically in Quebec. But we were playing with Since the Flood. And um, they had this dude, Chuck, as their singer at the time. And um, he's a little shorter, but just like, you know, solid. I think he worked construction. Uh, he walked around with like a, a buzz cut and a Carhartt, you know, and he was just kind of, you know, quiet. Um, but, you know, you wouldn't want to cross that guy. And so that's what it was. We missed that opening show, and it was Quebec City, or maybe it was Montreal. But we were supposed to play with um, our friends that we played with in Quebec City, the very first tour we had. And I had reached out to their singer uh, because when we stayed with them, he had this, like, maple syrup product, which was like a spread that you put on toast or whatever. Uh, it was called maple spread. And I told him, I was like, hey, I messaged him. I was like, hey, do you think you could have some of that? And I'm like, I'll pay you for it. Like, I wanted, like, a tub of this stuff. And uh, so we missed that show, and they weren't – his band wasn't playing down in Gatineau that, on the on the next night. So, you know, we're set up, and, and – or, or, like, all the – you know, your, 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 your gear in, and the show hadn't started yet. And um, I remember Chuck walking over and be like, hey, where's borrowed time? And I was just like, oh, shit. And uh, – He's like, the, the guys from, uh, I think it was Stand Aside, was there? I can't remember their name. Um, he just walks up and he's like, uh, they wanted me to give this to, to one of the guys in Borrowed Time? And he like holds up the maple spread. It was like, yeah, <laughs> like I can't believe this guy is delivering this maple spread to me uh, at this moment. It was just kind of this funny thing. I was, you know, super grateful. And then you know that also made me go off even harder for their uh, their buried alive cover when they they were up later that night. Um, but it just cracked me up, you know, like this tough ass guy walking around with a can of maple <laughs> spread for me. Man, that's crazy. I didn't realize. I thought they just did the buried alive cover here that time because they were playing near Buffalo with with Madball. So they had that and they're set for a little while then, huh? Since the flood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a good time. That was a good band too. Um, yeah, so I have a few other questions about that kind of stuff with, like, you know, fun stories and stuff like that. But first, let's kind of, let's dive into current, let's dive into the current events just a little bit so we don't end on, a, on like, a negative uh, kind of sour note, which most of the current event stuff is about, I guess. How, how has the quarantine and, like, the pandemic affected your lifestyle, though, I guess, out there? I mean, I, I, know, I know things are a little different now with things kind of opening back up, but I know Arizona was kind of kind of hit or miss it seemed like for being one of the hot spots for a little while there yeah i think we're like per capita um you know there's some sort of statistic we're like number one in the nation uh in the in the spike over the last couple of weeks um but really who's driving that is maricopa county which is where phoenix is and that's like the political hotbed of like reactionaries and like hardcore conservatives who are like you know individual liberty is best expressed through like the capitalist free market um like from hell or high water and um yeah they've their their numbers are insane um but for me um initially it was uh we had um spring break and that kind of gave our school district that i work for and uh you know like sets the tone for the other schools uh, around here as like um kind of give them a little pause to be able to uh figure out what to do because they were seeing in others you know other states uh that weren't having spring break in the middle of march because we end so early that um that they were going to start closing so eventually we did and um 
it was kind of it was kind of tough because it was also trying to you know we have four kids um from 12 to 2 and um like how to and the weather was really nice so we got out a lot we were doing hikes and walks and you know going to parks and stuff trying to stay away from people um and then but for me it was just and it's kind of been the same um for those these last few months just like cooking and cleaning and trying to find something and now the heat is so bad that you can't really go out during the day so it's been kind of intense but luckily like um uh my family had moved down uh to arizona a few years ago too but they live they live kind of um a little ways away from phoenix so thankfully like they've uh because my niece has a, a compromised immune system um she got this weird thing a year or two years ago and um so my sister was a little slow at like letting us in and she has so it's like it's been easier to like kind of cut it up but it's also created the opportunity you know because we're we can have some resources thankfully as a teacher you know i kind of still get paid um to like go out and do hikes and, and walks and see stuff that we would normally get to um but uh yeah it's meant I, I get to watch shows and movies i wouldn't ordinarily do um but yeah it, it, it um two people i know through the community died as a result uh one was older and had already like um uh health issues and was in but he was in one of those uh the nursing homes and um he had i had seen like his daughter communicated to somebody that that he had passed away and it was because of that there was a an older uh, African-American woman who worked in our school's library uh, two years ago, uh, this awesome lady and, and like just a wealth of knowledge on uh, all those stuff. She, she ended up passing from it. Um, a dude I worked with um, when I taught at juvenile detention center, uh, he had recently started working IT at Amazon and they like had, you know, zero restrictions on this stuff. He got sick pretty bad. Um, so it's been kind of like, you know, like on the one hand, counting our blessings, you know, um, I had an autoimmune issue last summer um, and I'm, I take this immunosuppressant to like keep this antibody down from making me blind again. And um, so it's like, okay, I, I take this stuff every day that like lowers my, you know, white T cell count that's like supposed to fight shit off. And like, there's this global pandemic raging around dropping uh, you know, dropping people left, right, and center. So that's just kind of been just trying to not even pay attention to the news sometimes on that stuff because it is so intense. Uh, and like, I can't, you know, I just don't want that to like eat up my daily life went, which is like taking care of our kids and, and all that good stuff. So, um, yeah, just trying to try to stay on the like optimistic side of things, I guess. Yeah, that, that, that's where I'm at. I mean, I've been back to work for like a month and a half, so I've kind of been, keeping pretty busy with that and I haven't had quite as much time to do this which this podcast probably wouldn't have even happen if I hadn't been stuck at home for you know two and a half months um and you know with everything going on and the numbers and stuff after like four to six weeks I kind of stopped paying attention to the news because it was just like you know what what else am I really gonna gonna get from this at this point you know but then yeah. but then the other piece of current events happened um with the Black Lives Matter movement kind of uprising again. Um, so I kind of want to get your take on that. Um, obviously, you know, I personally feel like it was a needed thing to happen, but but one thing I'm kind of of the opinion of is that 
you know, if we weren't all kind of stuck in our homes and, and having all this time to see all these fucked up videos, you know what I mean? Like, how, how much different would things have been? Like, would there have been as many protests? And you know what I mean? Like, it just kind of makes you wonder. I mean, obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a good cause, but it just seems like it was like a perfect storm, you know. I mean, there's never a perfect storm for what's happened to, to the people, you know, but it just kind of seems like we all had all this extra time to, to, to see and share these videos, and, and now we've kind of... Now I'm kind of wondering what, what what the next step is supposed to be, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think I think that like that like bottled upness that we're in stress that uh, so many people were feeling, and then like yeah, it was not long before that when a lot of those like reactionary uh, white dudes and conservatives, you know, the people I'm talking about up in Phoenix, who had took over like state capitals with guns and just like you know f all this like mask stuff and we're not having it so yeah i, I think you're, i think you're exactly right that just like it was a, a specific you know time place and conditions that you know like that simmering powder keg that that his in that video just just gruesome you know and there's just like there's no mistaking what was going on there um and you know i i have the, the honor and privilege to teach um african-american history classes and african-american government uh, at the school I work at, and um, you know, so I, I've had to learn uh, a lot of this stuff myself over the last, um, you know, five seven years, and um, you know, and kind of like get my politics right uh, if they weren't. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think what what that highlights is just like it, it's been, I think the thing that stands out to me is almost the way in which. Um, the, the tidal wave was just so much bigger this time, not only like of the, the, the number of cities and the intensity of protests, but also like looking, reading the, social, the, the comments on social media, like there has been a, a, a shift, like the needles moved in favor of like better understanding what people are talking about when they say Black Lives Matter um, and, and how this stuff works. It feels like, you know, lots of more, lots more people have, have learned the lessons over the last, you know, six years or so since all that or, or at least eight years back to Trayvon and um, so you know the next step I don't think is uh, of course okay like determined yet of course but like um, you know here our police department had to just release two videos in which they had uh, two in custody deaths and we're supposed to have like a you know reform minded quote unquote progressive quote unquote uh, police department um, and uh, they had to share these two videos through public request um, of, of two in custody deaths I mean they restrained these two guys on drugs um, and and the and it, it, it's weight on their body that did it um, and not even on the like directly on the head or the neck but like weight on the torso you know being handcuffed behind face down one guy both had the, that spit hood put over their face. Um, one guy was covered in, in several layers of those uh, like disposable black or uh, plastic blankets. Um, and so it's like there's no there's like no place in which this no police department, however good they're supposedly are, it's just and people are missing the point that it's like it's the structure, it's the two institution, it's the culture of these of this specific thing that. Um, police that like creates this stuff whether you like it or not whether there's uh in, in any sort of uh, intention behind it or not that 
uh, you know, the, the implicit bias that comes through it, but it's also like the, just viewing people as like inconveniences. Like, like so the, the one that happened here in March was uh, some dude was on meth, uh, uh, was driving a car and hit somebody else and then ran. Thankfully there was no injuries. He ran some father and sound like grabbed his foot from him going over a wall and the cops wrestle him down and you know and you can hear what they're saying to this guy and like I said they don't see him as like oh my god somebody's like clearly jacked up on something you know it's just it's like an episode of cops or you know like some judge dread kind of stuff where they just feel like they can do whatever the hell they want to whoever they want whenever they want and like I said like they just come off like like some sort of inconvenience so um what I hope next is, is, is people pick up the demand for, for community control of police that um, groups, um, there's a group called the, the National Alliance Against uh, Racist and Political Repression. And they've put together, um, you know, a list of demands, but one of them is specific to like how to create community control in your city uh, over the police department. And that is like an elected civilian board um, that comes from the people and, and, and the, the one they have in Chicago is specifically like, um, what do I want to say? Like the, the candidates have to have at least two years experience of like fighting for justice or defending the rights of people of color, immigrants, uh, et cetera, from either um, ICE or police departments or something like that. And then, you know, you get elected and you have the power to hire, fire, investigate, um, you know, you that group sets the policy, sets the trainings, um, sets the budget, right? So, like, it encapsulates the movement that people and the call for like defunding the police that is has been really popularized uh, since George Floyd's murder, and um, and I think I, I hope that's the thing that like people can really carry out of out of that is like working to talk about you know basically democratizing the control over the police from um from themselves but also like you know city councilors or, or mayors who are just you know lock and step with uh with the blue wall of silence and all that stuff yeah and it's funny because i was talking to a i was talking to a buddy of mine a few weeks back when all this was happening and and he was like you know defund the police like what are we going to do next and i didn't really know much about what you were just talking about and that's pretty much what i suggested i was like we need like an independent board of of people to to kind of have a say in this because like we're the ones who are affected by this like why shouldn't we have a say and i think it definitely makes sense to have people who have been active you know and that kind of stuff to be the ones that are running it you know so hopefully moving forward we'll see some some real positive change you know i i know you and i have both been involved in activism in different parts of our life i think you've been you know you've stayed more involved than i did but one thing that for me always kind of sucked was that we would have all these protests and rallies and we would kind of, not to use a cliche term, but we would kind of scream for change and you wouldn't really see a whole hell of a lot of change. But now I think you and I both know that like something's going to come out of this. Like it's not going to be a thing where it's just going to be people, you know, protesting for six months. Like they're going to they're gonna keep protesting until something happens. I can, you can kind of tell, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but yeah, I guess that's kind of pretty much all the, the current non-fun, uh, hardcore stuff that I really wanted to ask you about. Um, so you had kind of been referencing, uh, well, you told the funny story about the Since the Flood guy. Um, you and I could probably like do like a, a four-volume uh, podcast of like funny and crazy stuff that we've seen and, and kind of kept talking about as inside jokes, like you were saying. Um, 
But what are some of your other uh, favorite memories of, of just all the fun and wild stuff you've seen at shows over the years? Yeah, you know, I think um, the, one of the go-tos for us is going to that terror show in Syracuse. And, um, you know, I wasn't driving slow. I don't really drive that slowly, but I, we weren't exactly, like, racing uh, to get there either. And <laughs> we just looked over to our left and... and it was even, I think it's even kind of even funnier, um, and we see Sweeper from Buffalo. Um, you know, he's a tall guy, and he's got a smaller car. And he's just he I don't know, just as probably as pissed off as a human being can be. <laughs> just like furious, he's just like had it had at least pegged to ninety, just zooming past us. And it's not like we were going to be late. You know, we didn't want to yeah. miss whoever was was open that show. But you know, you and I just died laughing until we, until we got to the doors of that show. Um, and I don't know if, if at the, I don't know if he had cooled off that you wanted to like go ask him what was up after like when we were there that night, uh, or, or or if that ever came up. I know I said so I broke his balls about it that, and I doubt he remembers it at this point. I don't, I haven't talked to him in a few years, so I'm not sure if he's been actively listening to any of these podcasts. Um, but he's definitely somebody I want to get on here for an interview because he's played in some good bands. And just like you and I, whenever I would talk to him about hardcore, it's like him and I had very similar interests. And, you know, and obviously, as, as we saw that night, we would end up at a lot of the same shows. Um, and when I, when I went to go on tour with Stamfest in 2001, the tour fell apart and we didn't even make it to the first show. Um, so I ended up coming back home for like a day or two and then I went straight back to Buffalo and I stayed with Ruben and Steve Titus for like a week. And then I stayed with, with Sweeper and Mark Miller for like another week. Which I never even... I saw Mark Miller in passing like once or twice. But Sweeper and I were just hanging out and just shooting the shit the whole time. We went to Erie. Um, that's actually another funny story. We went to Erie. I think I've told you this one before too. We went to Erie to see um, True Blue and Desperate Measures. And, and I think Walls of Jericho and Death Threat both canceled. Um, but anyways, True Blue was playing in Erie... And I don't know if, if Borrowed Time ever played Erie or you, you and I ever went to Erie for a show, but but it was more of like a, what you'd call like a metalcore, like Trustkill, Victory Records type of city. They weren't as into like the New York hardcore stuff. So True Blue's playing and they're not really getting much of a reaction or a pop or whatever. And all of a sudden Sweeper just starts running through and trying to like mosh through everybody. But like it was like the parting of the seas or whatever. Like when he started running through, the crowd just completely opened up. And it was hot and sweaty, so he ran and just like immediately slipped and fell. And I'm sitting there like covering my mouth, trying not to let him see that I'm laughing, you know. But, um, but no, he he's a definitely a good dude and one of my favorite people. Um, and speaking of Buffalo, there's another funny show that you and I went to. Well, it's probably not funny to everybody, but it's definitely funny to you and I. I feel like um, I don't remember who all the bands were playing. I, I was just talking to Jeremy Burke about this. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember if it was that name or Boner, but either way. Um, a classic dude from Henrietta he was like 17 or 18 at the time and he'd never been to like a crazy show where there was like fights so he was like running around like like our little brother like a lost puppy the whole night like oh my god did you see this did you see that and it's like dude I don't know how much you remember that but that was like the, the violent era when there was like fights like during every band's set and it was like As I Lay Dying With Honor I think Sworn Enemy might have been on that tour too um, but anyways I I still to this day haven't really had too many conversations with with uh, Joe Riverside, but um, you know the security the security was kind of being assholes and there was just like fights and everybody's running around 
And again, I don't really know him that well, so I hope he doesn't mind me telling this. I, I, I don't know if he's really going to hear it, but... Um, so, yeah, the owner of Extreme Wheels gets on the mic in between, like, one of the fights or whatever, and he's like, you know, it'd be cool if everybody could just calm down, respect what's going on. And the whole time, Joe's, like, nodding his head and just, like, standing there, and, like, you could tell he wants to say something. And I'm kind of like, oh, shit, this dude's going to kind of kind of help calm things down too i bet he's not gonna you know what i mean it's not gonna be anything crazy anymore so then the owner hands joe the mic and literally like immediately he just grabs it and points at one of the security guards <laughs> and he's like you you put the flashlight down and let's do this and it's like oh my god dude he's like trying to challenge like security guards to a fight and there's probably like 20 20 security guards at the show you know what i mean and it's like for you and i like you know, we came up, like, 15 years after, like, the really crazy, like, skinheads and, and like, the, the judge shows and AF and shit like that. So I'm guessing their stories are, like, 10 times crazier than ours. But, like, shit like that for me was, like, holy fuck. You know what I mean? Like, and it was just it was just a riot, you know? Yeah, that was, that was definitely quotable stuff right there. Um, yeah, I remember that show. That show was intense. Um, it's not so funny, I guess, as, like, it was a uh, interesting and like funny in retrospect, uh, and, and definitely when we got home. But uh, another Buffalo show, and it was that sick lineup. Um, I don't remember. You, you'll have to uh, refresh me where it was. Tiny little place. Um, uh, it was Terror, The Promise, The Death for Every Sin. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know where this is going, and. Um, the beef ended up getting squashed years later, thanks to like borrowed time. And um, uh, what's Joe Riverside's band with Ruben? Rhinoceros. Or no, 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 no. Uh, uh, Infamous. 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 Yeah. With with borrowed time and Infamous playing so many shows together, and you know us being good buddies and stuff like that. But you know, was, in that era, uh, this dude Chris was like, you know, he'd go off when band the same bands and the same breakdowns and shit. Um, but he, he was just notorious for like whipping into the crowd and like kicks and all this stuff. And, you know, so I had my eye on him and he just drove me nuts. And you know, I would never go out and actively seek somebody and start anything um, or like instigate or whatever. But it was, I remember it was um, Terror's uh, last song and it was um, uh, Lowest of the Low. And so they're playing the, the, you know, the final breakdown. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going off doing my thing, and I feel this, like, kick in my back. And uh, and I'm not doing anything, like, near, like, the crowd like Chris does. And then I get this, like, kick in my ass as I was, like, bending over, like, picking up change or something. And, uh, and I turned around and just, like, it wasn't, like, a full punch, but it was, like, kind of a punch, like, push takedown thing. And I just floored him. And, like, he pops up in my face, and we're yapping, and, like, all of a sudden, like, he kind of, like, steps to the side or something, or he spun, or, like, we moved or something, and all of a sudden, there's there's Andy Williams from Every Time I Die right there. And he's thankfully not pissed, but he's just more, like, trying to figure out what's going on and, like, kind of concerned and almost, like, looking to break things up. And, you know, I was just, like, I, I just de-escalated quickly because we I wanted to get out of there alive. And I'll just never forget, like, there's Andy Williams, in Buffalo at a show like this, like the crew would have been out for that one. And regardless of like you, me, Aiden and Sean rolling to that show, we were just so outnumbered. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, 
thankfully we got out of that show alive with our skin. Well, the funny thing about that is, I'm sure you, you're aware by now that Andy Williams is a professional wrestler now, too. Um, so he's only gotten bigger since then. Um, and I was friends with him at the time, so I feel like I probably could have smoothed things over. However, the, the funny part about that is... Is I'm I was standing completely up front, like right in, like on the stage, not on the stage, but you know what I mean, like right in front of the stage. And Aiden comes up to me afterwards. He's like, "Yo, did you see that shit?" And I was like, "Fuck yeah, dude! Terror fucking ripped it up, man. The shit was awesome, you know." And he's like, "Nah, man. Jim Jim got into a fight, and like I didn't know that kid. I thought the way he moshed was annoying too. So I was like, oh, cool, you know, fuck him, you know.' And then he's like, "But no, man, Andy." And I was like, and I remember right when he said Andy's name, I was like, "Oh shit, Andy was doing security that night or whatever." So that's probably why he popped right up to see what was going on, you know, but yeah, Andy's, he's definitely someone I wouldn't want to have to, have to, uh, you know, um, <laughs> but it's, it, things could have definitely ended up different. It's a good thing they didn't, I guess. Um, but that's just the thing about those shows back then. And I'm sure it's the same now. And that's what I was kind of thinking of too. When you, when we were talking about, you know, me not doing shows anymore after like, uh, 2003, 2004, I mean, I've done sporadic shows from like 2008 to 2012, like, you know, a couple here and there, but Sometimes I regret, like, kind of wondering where things would have gone and, like, how big it could have gotten for me. But then I think about, and I want to preface this by saying I have a few friends that have face and neck tattoos. So I don't despise everybody who has a face and a neck tattoo. But around, like, 2008, 2009, you started seeing all these kids that looked like they were, like, a part of, like, Sons of Anarchy or some shit with, like, all the face and the neck tattoos. And I'm like, who the fuck are all these kids, for one, you know? And then for two, it's like they all—they're all there just to start fights. It seemed like at the time, like, and they all like, everybody had like a crew all of a sudden, and it was just. So part of me was kind of relieved that I wasn't doing shows and I was more just behind the scenes. And like a lot of times, I could kind of just be like a like a rat bones of Rochester, like where people didn't really—they knew who I was, but I was basically just there to mosh and kind of cause a little havoc here and there. But I definitely wasn't trying to get into any fights unless maybe I like jumped off a table onto a security guard one or two times you know but other than that like I, you know me I'm not really one to pick fights or anything like that um but I definitely I definitely don't mind being around him I guess either <laughs> um yeah but I guess the last uh the last funny thing and, and, I, and I don't really remember all the details but you and I when I booked Sick of It All in 2003, late December, you and I ended up going to like three Sick of It All shows in a row because um, they were touring with With Honor and, they, and that, that was a band that I was friends with at the time. So we went to the Buffalo show and then I booked the show here and then you and I went to Albany the next night and the, and the Albany show was like one of those stillborn fest things where it was like Hatebreed, AF, um, The Promise I'm pretty sure played, obviously Sick of It All and With Honor would have played and you and I stuck around for the whole show and Hatebreed was playing and that was when Hatebreed, like, and even now probably still, I, I haven't seen Hatebreed in like 10 years, well, maybe a little bit less than that, but you know what I mean. They have like that fringe kind of like new metal, um, just a lot of different people come to their shows. And, you know, they played some old stuff, so I started moshing, and all of a sudden, like, I feel like, like somebody like punched me in the back of the head or something. I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I don't remember if you pulled the dude off me or what, but it was just like, that was the thing about those like mixed bill type shows where it wouldn't just be a hardcore show. Like it'd be cool to introduce like new kids to shows or whatever, but some of those kids just they're not gonna really get it and they just wanna mosh like assholes and they just wanna fight people who who they see dancing differently. So it was never really something that I really cared too much for, you know? Yeah. There's um that was always 
always the annoying part in those kind of crossover things. I remember um, even the security, like they didn't understand that when Ramallah played um, Water Street on the smaller stage, I was flying, racing it there because I don't think I had seen him at that point, and I was just so excited uh, to see him because that, that EP was so heavy. Um, I finally get it, and I missed like the first song too. I was so pissed. Um, and uh, they bust into like Al Chifa, and like the breakdown comes like kind of early in that song. And I remember just, you know, like nobody's really doing much um, watching those guys. And um, I'm not really near anybody. And I just start, I go off, and like the security guard just comes flying over to me and like tries wrestling me. To, and I'm just like, you know, they just didn't understand, you know, they, and they're like, he thought I was going to try and punch somebody or something. And, uh, like, thankfully, like, you know, a couple of people just like stepped in and I just kept like flying around, like doing my thing, just like trying to stay away from this dude. But, um, it was fun. I remember, um, a hate breed story. Thankfully they played, you know, when they would play like the hardcore shows, um, they wouldn't draw too much of that other crowd. Um, and they played, uh, myself Sean uh and he was like starting to get into a relationship with that girl Vanessa uh at the time and uh, we had gone down to see them uh, in Philadelphia and I can't remember who else played on that bill but I was like exhausted from driving it and then Madball played right before Avery and I'm just like wiped out I'm like oh man I'm going in there for Avery forget it you know we had seen him a bunch like in that stretch um when those records came out but they played their intro was the outro to the second album um and like as soon as they played that it's just like i was like <laughs> i just go flying in there um, it's just like a you know somebody flipped the switch um those guys you know live put on a great show um i remember seeing the clip from them playing uh united blood from not long ago uh, a handful a couple of years ago and they opened up with something off of under the knife um and holy like holy shit i can't imagine like being there and like that opening riff um i don't know if it's smash your enemies or what um no i think it's seven anyway um yeah man those 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 shows just create like so many memories because you you got so many different kind of characters and elements uh that like come together um uh, and just come come flying at each other in a number of different ways yeah i've probably told you at least six or seven times since you and i have been friends that my go-to like if i were ever to start a band i want to tell somebody like what the perfect album to learn how to play drums for a hardcore band is it would definitely be satisfaction um the drumming on that album is just is just fucking perfect like and there's a lot of other hardcore bands like like nick jet in my opinion is obviously probably the best drummer like for like like that kind of hardcore now obviously but that that when that hatebreed lp came out i was just like fuck man that shit is it's fucking good um and, and you know we could just like we could have a four volume episode about the funny stories i'm sure we could probably have a four volume episode talking about um hatebreed which actually that that leads into another topic that i i kind of want to bring up on this episode for the people who are listening uh you and i have been talking about doing um and we'll probably start doing this hopefully in september like a monthly episode where it's either a top 40, we haven't decided an exact number yet, but we're going to do like a top 40 or a top 50 uh, breakdowns in hardcore uh, of all time. And you and I still have to kind of put the research in. And I'm sure we're going to leave songs out because 
how are we going to go through every song and pick, you know what I mean? And then it's going to have to be a thing where we're going to have to pick, like, a couple songs from each band, maybe, because some bands have so many songs and so many good breakdowns. But that's going to be a real fun project, and I'm, I'm excited for us to do that at some point, you know? So. Yeah, me too. I've been uh, trying to think about that and, you know, mulling over criteria to use and, and I feel like, yeah, we got to put out that disclaimer that, like, let's, like, this is our style that we really dig, you know, and like, um, you know, that's, that's like, we can't, yeah, you can't include this, you know, there's, there's a breakdown on, on like two, three times <clears throat> on like every, uh, a death for every sin song or, you know, uh, or eight freak song, you know, and like, there's like five breakdowns off of that first, uh, first blood demo EP, um, that, you know, should be up there. But yeah, that list is going to be fun to put together to try and, waffles uh that's gonna be fun to put together um and hopefully kind of create some uh, online debate back and forth Ooh. and yeah. then you know it's like maybe introducing people to like bands and songs that they hadn't heard before but it just kind of rekindled that oh you know like digging through my brain as to like what's the stuff that like um just like like i said just kind of flips that switch and you just kind of go awol to it yeah, and we, we probably can't put the entire Final Word EP on there as much as we'd like to. Um, and I'm sure we could probably put that whole First Blood LP on there, too, the first one. Because that, that, and, and that was a band that I got into later. Like, I didn't like them as much when you first played them for me. So I don't know if the, the demo and the EP have a lot of the same songs that are on that first LP. Uh, California, I think it was called. Um, mm -hmm. But that, man. And that's another one where you and I, we drove out to see... Um, well, we didn't drive. You drove. I, I never fucking drove to any of these shows. Um, but it was Ignite, uh, First Blood, Comeback Kid, and maybe a couple other bands. Oh, another Breath probably played, too, uh, in Syracuse. And that was, like, not long after California had came out. So First Blood was definitely getting a good re reaction at that time, you know. Uh, I think that was my only time seeing those guys live, too, honestly. Um, but I guess with that in mind... Um, as I'm sure you've heard listening to a few of these episodes, I like to ask people uh, if they could put a dream show together of like four to six bands. And it doesn't have to be active bands. And if it is an active band and they put out shitty LPs, you can exclude that, obviously, and put them in like uh, of their heyday era. So if you had to do that, uh, what kind of bands do you think would be on a show like that? I mean, yeah, I'm just going to stay to, you know... Uh stay to stick to hardcore bands um and i don't know i was I, I had been thinking about it when i listened to you ask that question um and it's like whether or not i'm gonna go with bands that um i'd love to see that i never got to see um like bitter end or like trapped under ice or am i gonna go judge um uh or am i gonna go with yeah like somebody in their heyday uh who maybe i even like saw in some of their reunion stuff like the pro mags um, I don't know, man. Um, I'm gonna like I can't like I just recapture that magic of uh, of those years that we just kind of were like the formative, really, just like our the golden years, if you will. Like I, I would put um, you know, the the terror from the first DP on there. Um, no warning, ill blood era. To hear those songs live with that kind of like at their peak, like to go back to that stuff, those two bands would be on there. Um, 
yeah, probably naming an actual show we went to uh, <laughs> if I put these put these bands back together. Um, Oh, man. Um, yeah, I'd probably throw like I'd throw a bitter end on there because I haven't seen them. I'd really like to see those guys. Uh, yeah, put Judge on there in their heyday. Um, four. I'm trying to think who else. Never got to see All Out War. Um, they're, they're, they've been like that elusive band that would be on a, a show and then not turn up for some reason oh i don't know i think i don't know i'd probably have to go with like uh with madball um probably around the time at least like up to set uh, um to hold it down to like dig out of that cat that catalog of material they had from back then yeah it'd be my five it probably sounds pretty cookie cutter or or stereotypical for somebody of my taste um but uh no I, those that set would be those band sets from like their times uh, would would definitely be like uh, something I would love to rekindle. Yeah, Bitter Ends is definitely a band that I think they played around here like twice when I had an opportunity to see them play. But again, I never really drove, and then the few months that I did drive for, we saw how that turned out. So uh, I don't know if, if there'll be any more uh, JL driving again anytime soon. Um, but so I couldn't really get to the Bitter End shows in Syracuse. Um, but that that's a band I would love to see live. Still, you know, like they've got what is it, three LPs out, and they're all they're all fucking good, you know. Um, and one thing that's interesting is is like a lot of people have made like masks and merchandise and stuff during the pandemic, and they've and they made it as like benefits for good causes, whether it's a food cupboard like they did, you know. Not a lot of these people are doing Black Lives Matter benefits now too, but with Bitter End, they have that. They made a mask. I think I showed you the picture of it. It's, it's, it says their name, and it's got the, the climate of fear thing on there. And it took them forever to, to make it and send it out, which I understand. It's the way they do merch now. But I finally got it, like, uh, about a month ago. And I've only worn it a couple times, because the first time I wore it, I went to go get ice cream with my girlfriend Sarah and our son. And I'm standing there in line wearing the thing, and everybody keeps giving me a weird look. And afterwards, I'm thinking to myself, like, yo, these people probably think this is, like, a fucking, like, alt-right like truther like this isn't like this pandemic's not real type of mask you know what i mean so i'm like man i don't know if i can really wear this thing i might just save it for like hardcore shows and like where if there's, if there's ever a hardcore show again wear it there type thing because i think i have like six plain black masks that they gave me at, at uh, macy's that i wear everywhere now so um i don't want to give people the wrong impression that i'm uh one of these like fucking you know and i don't care if, if people are you know it's just not i'm not like like a truther or anti-vaxxer or whatever you want to call it like you know and i do believe in some of like the truther type stuff you know but i don't I, I, like you and i have talked about i don't like to go down the, the alex jones rabbit holes if i don't have to you know yeah so yeah. but there are some there is definitely some uh some stuff that i agree with when i see that stuff but it's just there's only so many hours in the day, and as you know, having kids takes up a lot of those hours. So sometimes it can be kind of hard to to really try to get into all that stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's you're like, uh, you know, you you can like you like you said, it's like you share some of their criticisms and like analysis of things, and you're like you're like you can nod in agreement when people are saying stuff, and then it's just like the train comes off the tracks and you and you just can't get that agreement back when people start naming 
you know, uh, actors, you know, blaming on Jewish people or some secret cabal that's running the world. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and yeah, I got people on my Facebook timeline who would just share the stuff that's, um, like, like, you know, we're, we're all, and it's not to the, not to the point of like the, you know, the FEMA camp stuff where like, this is some high level conspiracy that, but it's just like, you've given your, your power away by like agreeing to these lockdowns and it's not necessary and that kind of stuff. It's like, I don't know how you and I can agree on so many other key important issues, but this one, you just, uh, yeah, you lost me on this and yeah. it's stuff that you can like see to show up in my timeline. Well, the way I like to look at it sometimes with, with these, uh, I don't know if you want to call them. I don't want to say conspiracy theorists because, again, like my girlfriend believes in a lot of conspiracy theories. But like the, if you want to use truther for lack of a better word, I guess some of these types. My thing is like a broken clock is definitely gonna be right twice a day. You know what I mean? So like, like people like Alex Jones, they're gonna throw like a thousand bullshit theories at you, and maybe one or two of them might actually end up being true. You know? But the rest of them, yeah. you're, you, like, how are you gonna believe the two that are right when you see the other? like 995 or whatever that you're like what the fuck does this even mean like what's this dude talking about you know so right right yeah it's tough because then you know like you can find like unity but it's really like it there's no way you could like build a movement like with these people or like organize something like that for an alternative to like the existing order things because the other the other things that they talk about like there's just no way you would agree you know, give them, get them any other topic in the world to talk about, and like you're on the complete opposite side uh, of the debate from these people. It's, uh, yeah, it's bizarre almost. Yeah, and I, and I and I have a. Well, I don't really want to say where I know this person from because then it's gonna out them. I mean, they'll never listen to the podcast, but just in case a mutual person I know listens to it, I know somebody who's like, whenever he gets a chance, he'll be like, "Oh, fake news," and I'm like you're obviously a fucking Trumper. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and it's like, I, 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 we all agree that like mainstream media is probably not the best source of information. But once you start throwing around the term fake news, I think I kind of know what side of the fence you're leaning on. You know what I mean? So, yeah. um, but yeah, that's pretty much all the topics and questions I had for this episode. Like I said, I plan on having you on every so often to do those breakdowns. But, um, do you have anything else you want to add or share or anything like that before we, uh, you know, leave it, leave it off for the next episode that you're going to be on, I guess? Uh, no, I just, number one, like, uh, so, so, um, happy that you're doing this. You know, I remember when you would, you were, we were texting back and forth about you talking about this as an idea, um, back in like March or April. And, uh, you know, it's obviously taken off to, to include some, some great uh, members of the hardcore community and it's only going to keep going. Um, so that's really cool. I just wanted to like share that, uh, like a, a rest in power for our friend Jake. Uh, we lost a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, big part of our, our borrowed time crew uh, there in Rochester back in the day. Um, and just, uh, just a solid working class dude uh, who had great taste in music and, and all, all sorts of other good things. Uh, so I just wanted to give him a little shout out on this. Yeah, and I guess maybe uh, when I get Aiden on, he can tell the uh, the crazy, funny Jake story that uh, I, I forgot to ask you to tell on this episode. But we'll leave that for him, I guess. Um, so yeah, I guess that wraps up episode 18. Uh, I want to thank Jim for doing the interview. Thanks to everybody for listening. 
Uh, thanks to Rob Antonucci for always helping out with everything. Um, thanks to my family for all the continued support. And, and as always, check us out at EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com. And uh, we'll see you real soon. Stay safe.